is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Programme. Shortly, we will be bringing you slumbertime stories. But first, in place of the increasingly ludicrous listeners' letters, we have a rather special treat for you. Following some diligent work in the ARC archives, we have unearthed some of the earliest recordings of old Albion folk songs that are known to exist. These were collated by the venerable Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels, a retired headmistress from Skegthorpe in the north of Albion. Armed only with an old spiralo waxograph, she crisscrossed the whole of the country, recording songs that had been passed down from mother to daughter and father to son across countless generations. This was the first time that many of these songs had been recorded in any form, and most would be lost to us now without her diligent work. Now, these recordings have never been broadcast before, but due to a new process of spiralo-wax to phonograph conversion, we are privileged to be able to play these for you. In some cases, the quality of these recordings is very poor, but I'm sure you will agree with me that the harrowing beauty of these ancient reminders of a lost era still resonate. So, without further ado, I present a folk song of Old Albion, introduced by Dame Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels herself. I'm travelling through the disgusting slums and villages of Albion, recording some old folk songs. Most of these have never been recorded before, and it's not difficult to see why. Sing now. Oh, but the keeper in the tree, Mrs. Mulligan. Oh, but the keeper in the tree, Mrs. Mulligan. I asked my brother Jim, but he said it wasn't him. Oh, but the keeper in the tree, Mrs. Mulligan. Oh, put a haggis in my vest, Mrs. Mulligan. Who put a haggis in my vest, Mrs. Mulligan? I asked my sister Flo, but she said it wasn't her. Who put a haggis in my vest, Mrs. Mulligan? Who put an igloo in the pond, Mrs. Mulligan? Who put an igloo in the pond, Mrs. Mulligan? I asked the local top, but he told me to off. Who put an igloo in the pond, Mrs. Mulligan? Can I have sixpence? Go away! Well now, that was a truly unforgettable experience. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm already looking forward to bringing you more of these beautiful songs over the next few weeks. Now on the light programme, it's Slumbertime Stories. And this week, it's the first part of our Christmas special. Our Christmas special, Mabel? 
It's only the middle of October. Well, who did schedule it? Oh, for heaven's sake. Does anyone actually look at this stuff before it's put in front of me? Oh, well, just when I thought everything was going smoothly. Here is the first part of our extremely unseasonable Christmas special. Read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Part One of A Christmas Carry-On by Darren Callow. The potential time-displacing thermogrammetide compostulator was dead, to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Marley, on the other hand, was in root health, and chose this moment to swing a somewhat desultory steel-toe-capped boot at this aforementioned component, which gave forth a most baleful clang in return. It was, after all, a fairly chunky piece of mostly ferrous equipment. The noise of this crude admonishment brought Marley's master and fellow inventor scurrying into the room. "'Whatever is the commotion, dear boy?' inquired the newcomer, carrying what was most probably his third goblet of mulled wine of the evening. For indeed this very night was Christmas Eve. Sebastian Crumplefold Rouge, known to all and their spouses as Scrooge, cut a somewhat more casual figure than Marley, since he had already donned his second-best dressing gown and a tasseled nightcap, and was in the full throes of making most merry. He ran a calloused hand through his mince-pie-crumb-inflected moustache and shook his head in mild despair. Marley, old thing, will do yourself a mischief. It's Christmas Eve. Join me for a pie and some punch. He waved a gowned arm in the vague direction of the parlour, where a roaring log fire could be heard crackling heartily. Marley, hands on the hips of his crumpled coat, continued to stare at the machine that was now sparking in a slightly pathetic way. Eventually, after what seemed an age, he lifted his greasy welding goggles from his eyes and turned to face Scrooge, his face lightly smeared with oil. Unlike Scrooge, Marley was attired in full-length, heavy-duty brown cotton lab coat, heavily creased. Insulated leather gauntlets, well-soiled, and the aforementioned work boots, complete with recently added dent on the right toe. None of these, however, was his most distinctive feature, which was instead a shock of white hair, caused by a somewhat unfortunate incident with a 20,000-volt static electricity generator, a size 12 plumber's wrench, and a ferret. Uh, best not to ask. I don't know how you can always be so blasted jolly, he accused Scrooge. This time machine of ours isn't really going to invent itself now, is it? Certainly on current viewing, the room full of machinery gave no indication of forming itself spontaneously into a fully functioning time machine. However, it was quite a picture. Pipes and mechanisms festooned every wall, linked by wires, induction loops, and controls the like of which you'd have never seen before. 
In truth, there were far too many eccentric contraptions in the room for me to do it justice on these meagre pages. However, just off-centre in the room was a particularly distinctive arrangement that certainly drew the eye. Its main constituents were a giant brass oval made of chunky pipework, easily big enough to allow, say, a, a medium-sized donkey to pass through without major impediment. Directly behind this was a large smoked glass bell chamber with a wrought iron door that could easily accommodate one person and perhaps a second with only a little discomfort on their part. All the other crazy devices, including miscellaneous valves and control panels, all seemed focused on this central orifice. The very cold heart of the entirely non-functioning apparatus, as Marley had never described it. Oh, our time machine is it now, chuckled Scrooge to himself with a part rueful, part sozzled smile. Sometimes I think you get ideas a little above your station, Marley, old chap. Accompanied by more slow head-shaking, Scrooge turned away from Marley heading back to his supper. I'm away to bed soon. Tomorrow is Christmas, for heaven's sake. Go home and spend this sacred eve with your kin. Oh, and don't bother coming in tomorrow either. He paused at the oak doorway to raise his now somewhat tepid mulled wine in a toast and a simple benediction. Merry Christmas, Marley. Do try and enjoy a little of the spirit of the season. With that, he swept, a little drunkenly, out of the laboratory, colliding with the doorpost only the once, and disappeared to enjoy as many of the spirits of the season as he could squeeze in before bedtime. With this overly dramatic departure, it was Marley's turn to shake his head and offer a particularly unmemorable Christmas. Bah! Sauerkraut! With Scrooge gone, and the laboratory starting to turn a little chilly as the frosts of the evening scratched their icy fingers down the window. Marley conceded that perhaps the old man was right for a change. There was little he could do that evening, and since the indefatigably jovial buffoon had given all the laboratory assistants Christmas Day off, there was bugger all to be done tomorrow also. With a heavy heart and cold extremities, he began to do as little as possible to tidy the laboratory before departing himself. It was at that exact moment that something rather unexpected occurred. Heralded by a cloud of sparking steam that materialised as if from the very elements themselves, there followed a flash of light and a clap of thunder, the sheer force of which threw Marley off his feet and into a nearby workbench, scattering a clatter of tools in all directions. When the steam began to dissipate, and Marley had regained what little composure he had to take in the situation, he felt himself feeling more than a little queasy. If his hair had not already been pure white, it would almost certainly have become so due to the sheer shock of it all. In fact, 
Marley did tentatively raise a hand to his locks, just to confirm that his hair hadn't decided to add insult to injury and fall out completely. He wouldn't put it past it. The scene that now confronted Marley's watery, blinking eyes was quite extraordinary. In the centre of the room, directly opposite the large brass oval, was a second, similarly constructed, if a little more tarnished, brass loop. And behind that, a second, oversized glass bell jar. The, the two were like bizarre mirror images of each other, except that the new arrival was the more worn and seemingly world-weary of the two. Waving the last of the smoke away, the trembling Marley tentatively began to approach the door of the apparition. Could it be true? Did the blasted time machine turn out to be a workable proposition after all, now visiting its creators from the future? Or perhaps some other horrors lay within. Marley's knees began to shake uncontrollably as the iron door of the bell jar creaked open and a hooded figure stepped out of the glass compartment through the brass ring and into the laboratory. Marley by this point was a quivering mess. Oh, baleful traveller from the future, be you gentle upon me, he wailed pathetically. This being Christmas and all, he added, in case this had any bearing on his fate. Oh, do pull yourself together, you great blithering pansy, admonished a very familiar-sounding voice. As the figure folded back the hood of his cloak, Marley found he was staring into his own, somewhat flemmier, eyes, as the stranger gave every impression of being none other than an older version of himself. Indeed, the more he looked, the truer it became. The hair was the same white shock, if a little thinner on top. The face, the same mess of features, if you glossed over the few additional wrinkles and a liver spot or three. Mind you, it did seem to have put on a little weight, although this was amply covered by a very fine waistcoat trimmed in gold. A particularly vulgar, chunky watch chain completed the visage, and even the cloak he wore looked like a particularly expensive garment. Now, dear listener, at this point in the story, I should warn you that attempting to follow a time-travelling narrative of this type is akin to juggling a dozen or so particularly frisky and soaking wet and perhaps also lightly oiled, otters, whilst attempting to complete the Bumper Times Christmas crossword on your lap with a frustratingly blunt pencil. In an attempt to assist you in this almost impossible endeavour, I will henceforth refer to Marley as, well, Marley, and the more aged, plumper version as Old Marley, or some variation on this. I hope this helps somewhat, although I really wouldn't blame you if you threw in the proverbial towel at this point and gave up the whole shebang as a bad lot. For the brave amongst you who choose to hang on in there, I will forge on. 
Quiet now, you blathering nincompoop, thundered old Marley again, and Marley thought it best to comply. I don't really know how this time travel malarkey works, but I cannot imagine that us meeting in this way is something generally understood to be pucker. Do you get my drift? Marley the less old nodded, although he was somewhat shy of the drift at that particular instance. Fine, so it is what it is, and it's crucial to our future prosperity and, you know, happiness and such, that you listen to this tale and comply with every last detail of the instructions I'm about to issue. Feel free to make yourself a little more comfortable, but don't get too close, in case this has unforeseen consequences. I'll make this as brief as I can. With this, Marley the Younger sat himself on the floor, and Marley the Elder presented his scenario. The long and short of it being thus. The time machine could, demonstrably, be made to work. And it seemed that the vital breakthrough in its development came the following morn, the 25th of December, 1825, in the new calendar. A particularly memorable date, thus explaining why the older Marley could easily recall it. Despite this singular breakthrough in the science of man and womankind alike, it would take a further 40 years or so to fully evolve the idea and make Marley an obscenely rich and disgustingly powerful man. However, there had been a rather odd occurrence when in a fit of narcissist and probably somewhat drunken conceit, old Marley had decided that his very first trip of note in the machine would be to surprise his younger self just after the eureka moment, as it were, and indulge in a little self-to-self gloating. On the occasion of this egomaniacal visitation that Marley the more aged had thought would come as no great surprise to his less decrepit version, since he would know by then that time travel was possible. Are you keeping up? Old Marley discovered with horror that his younger self had been sent home on Christmas Day by that bumbling ball of seasonal buffoonery, Scrooge, and the breakthrough had not been made. Terrified by this revelation, but somehow realising he was still in the game, as it were, he resolved to immediately travel back to the eve of the day of days and convince the younger self to get Scrooge to come over all humbug and demand that Marley work the aforementioned holy day and allow them to make the necessary discovery. What? spluttered the more juvenile of the two, hitting the nail rather squarely on the head. Look, Dada Chops! barked Marley the senior, losing what little patience he had. It's blasted easy, and I've done all the hard work for you. He then proceeded to explain his plan, which seemed highly overwrought to the more callow of the two. But Marley the more rotund gave every impression of being about to explode, so he thought best not to argue. The principal gist of the scheme seemed to be to use the time machine to convince Scrooge that Christmas was a rather overrated event, while simultaneously also bringing him to think that time was short and they ought to press on with all alacrity. The former was to be accomplished by travelling to Scrooge's childhood, which, by all accounts, must have been rotten, as apparently his parents abandoned him 
and from thence to the future, where a quick shifty round Scrooge's grave ought to do the job with the latter part. I've done a little research, and the dates are all programmed in my machine. I, I needn't tell you how to work it, uh, since after all, you made it anyway, he chuckled. With that, Marley the latter seemed done with instructions and produced a bottle of port from a leather pouch on his belt, designed specifically for such a purpose, with a natty little snifter attached, and made towards the non-working version of the time machine. Since there will be no small amount of time-space continuum tomfoolery afoot tonight, and I am not at this moment, the safest place for me will be in the bell chamber of your earlier, not yet operational contraption where I intend to do justice by this rather nice vintage. Once I see you have accomplished the required effect, I'll make good my escape, taking my machine with me, and all will be well. And with that, he stomped into the chamber and shut the door behind him. And so once again, Marley found himself more or less alone in the room, despite the fact that it now contained two time machines, in varying states of functionality, and a second version of himself. Given that he was still somewhat dazed, and now in considerable fear of what his more ruddy version might choose to do if he didn't crack on with the plan, he thought it prudent to do just that. The decision made, his mind calmed just a fraction, and it occurred to him that what he needed was a disguise of some sort, and a bit of creative melodrama to encourage Scrooge along with this tin-pot adventure. Since, clearly, no amount of simple sweet-talking was going to rouse Scrooge from his slumber, considering that the arrival of a whacking great time machine from the future in his back room had not done so. The laboratory offered little by way of obvious assistance in this endeavour, so he moved to the window for inspiration, and lo! It was forthcoming. Outside, moving gingerly along the icy and dimly lit pavement, was a person clearly the worse for drink, wearing a gaudy red St. Nicholas costume with cheap fur trim and fake whiskers, waving a charity collecting box on a stick. Quick as you like, Marley headed to the front door to intercept his quarry, tarrying only to collect one of Scrooge's earlier inventions on the way out. As he opened the great front door, he began preparing the contraption, which Scrooge, every bit the lovey-dovey pacifist, had designed for the non-lethal detention of perpetrators by constables and such like. The device was a kind of sawn-off blunderbuss affair that fired a rubber ball of medium density with sufficient velocity to incapacitate without causing grievous injury. He cocked the flint and held the pistol behind his back while simultaneously waving his free arm aloft. My dear Santa, tarry a minute, he called out, in the most jovial tone he could muster. Ho, 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 replied Father Christmas, turning a little unsteadily to face Marley. Carry Mismas to you, my good man, or woman, he slurred. Would you dare to make a collation? Having completed his about-face, he jangled the collecting box optimistically. Kind of, replied Marley cryptically, before brandishing the pistol 
and firing the flintlock mechanism with a sharp crack and a puff of smoke. The rubber projectile emerged with all haste and hit Santa squarely on the chops, after which he fell promptly to the deck like a flawed boxer. Without so much as a by your leave, Marley, who was relieved that the prone man was still breathing, dragged the inert body down the back alley and into Scrooge's vast coal bunker. With reasonable efficiency, he removed the costume and false beard and headed forthwith back to collect a few other essential items for his ever-evolving scheme that was almost beginning to make sense in his head. Well, that certainly is a bright carry-on. Will Marley the Younger manage to convince Scrooge that Christmas really is humbug after all? Or is the whole escapade going to lead to an implosion of the time-space continuum ending all life as we know it? The only way to find out is to tune into the Light Program next week for another episode of Slumbertime Stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orbion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Callan. The part of Hildebrand Dilemma Spaniels was played by Emma King. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production for Albion Radiographic Corporation.